section where the writer of Hebrews is encouraging Christians about the rest that lies ahead of them. And I need to remind you what we did two weeks ago because it comes into play here as we finish off this section about the rest. We saw in Hebrews chapter 3 where the writer there uh, tells them that they need to watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart. And the way to solve that was to encourage one another while it is called today. So if it's called today, which would be all the time, all day, every day, there needs to be the encouragement of each other. And we talked about that encouragement needs to be grounded in the scriptures. It's not just getting together and having a good old time. It is a, a message of the word of God is what is the tool of encouragement. And they must encourage one another in that as they go come to that goal of desiring to stay firm and steadfast in the faith and not fall like Israel did in the wilderness. Now, that picks up in chapter 4 and in verse 1 because you'll notice he has there, therefore, based on this information of this warning of unbelief and falling because of disobedience that comes from an unbelieving evil heart, here's what they need to be aware of. Therefore, while the promise, Hebrews 4 verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Notice this warning again, and the writer of Hebrews does this again and again, where he warns them so that they will not lose their rest and not lose the hope that they have. And he begins by saying, we need to fear. And that word there is phobos. It's not just be careful or beware. It is fear. We need to be really concerned about the warning that he's giving so that we do not fail to reach it. And his point is very simple. What happened to Israel can also happen to us. And that's what he lays out there in in verse 2. They received the good news. The people of Israel heard the good news. Now, you ever thought about that? They received the gospel. They heard the good news. They they received the same message. Well, what does he mean by that? What message did they receive? Well, they had experienced the saving power of God in the Exodus, and they were exhorted to enter into the rest in the land of Canaan. Here's the good news. You're coming out of slavery, and God is delivering you by a mighty hand. He's going to bring you into a promised rest. However... He says there was a failure. They did not enjoy the rest. They did not obtain that. And so even though they experienced the saving power of God, and even though they had been brought out of the slavery, and they had been offered that they could go into the promised land, they failed to obtain it is what verse 2 gets at. And why did they fail? Notice the underscore there of the lack of faith. They heard the good news. They heard the message, but they were not united in faith. Remember, there were two people that did have faith, Joshua and Caleb, when we saw that. The rest of the congregation, the rest of Israel, did not hear like those two heard and then had faith like they did. Instead, they heard the good news and failed. And that is his big concern, is that there is a warning here. You are able to hear the gospel, you are able to hear the good news, and yet still fail to obtain the rest. 
But that's really not the big deal at the moment. I want you to watch what he plays out as the big deal. As he begins verse 3, he says, here's the big deal. For we who have believed enter that rest. The writer of Hebrews wants to put forward to us an amazing hope that is available to us. That there is a hope that we are able to enter the rest. In fact, what he's going to do from verse 3 all the way to verse 10 is prove that there is a rest that is still available for all who believe. And verse 3 is that premise. Verse 3 puts it forward. There is a rest that is available for those who believe. In fact, you'll notice he kind of clued us into that back in verse 1 as I skimmed over it so I could bring it back in right here in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, the ability to enter this rest is still available. It is still possible to enter into the rest that God promised. And now what he's going to do is give us two proofs. And I suppose if you're like me, I've read verses 3 through 10 before, and I have found that to be terribly complicated. And so I'm going to do my best is to kind of boil it down into the two big ideas of what he's trying to show in proving that the rest still remains. Notice verses 3 through 5. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. This is his first proof. His first proof is this. God promised that Israel would not enter his rest because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience, which draws a very logical conclusion. There was a rest that was available. That's what he's doing with that. Is he's laying out the clear idea. If there was a promised rest given to Israel. By which he told them they could not enter. Then there was a rest that was open. And that's why he uses Genesis 2. We often read Genesis 2 verse 2. And he says somewhere it says that God rested from all of his works. And we go, oh, isn't that nice that God rested from all of his works as if he was tired and, you know, those six days took a really long time and on the seventh day he needed to take a break. And the writer of Hebrews obviously shows us that's not the idea. The idea is this, when God rested from his works, there was an implication that all who had faith would be able to join with him in that rest. And we'll define the rest in just a minute. But that's the implication he's getting at. When God rested from all of his labors, it wasn't something merely for himself, which is proven by the fact that he offered to Israel, I want you to enter my rest. However, Israel failed at entering the rest. Now, I think it's important that we define what exactly is this rest. And sometimes what we have the tendency to do is we define rest in terms of ceasing from all activity. Which if you remember Jesus in John 5 verse 17 makes the point, that's not what God did. 
God did not create six days. On the seventh day, He rested, thereby meaning He just let the world spin, and there He is, and He's now just in a hammock, and He's taking a break, and He doesn't do any work whatsoever from this point forward. Jesus makes the point, the Father has been working from this very day, even until now. The Father hasn't stopped working. The idea of rest was not a cessation of all activity. I made that point when we were studying Deuteronomy a couple of weeks ago, that the point wasn't for Israel to stop all activity. The priests work harder on the Sabbath than any other days of the week. There's something bigger than just simply don't have activity. The big picture of the rest is that it was God's desire to enter in with Israel into having a permanent relationship with His people. God resting from His works is now offering Israel and saying, you can have a permanent relationship with Me. And that was being pictured in a small way with the Sabbath. Because think about what the Sabbath was all about. If you remember what Deuteronomy 5 taught... The Sabbath was all about remembering the relationship they had with God. Remember how you were slaves in Egypt and God led you out by a mighty hand. And what I want you to do is take a day where you stop trying to focus on survival. Go out there and cut the crops and pick up the food. Think about it in the wilderness. One day, I don't want you to walk outside and pick up food. The day before, you're going to trust God to give you enough to last you for the other day. Which, by the way, remember, that didn't work on any other day. If you took double any other day, it didn't work. It just rotted. But on that sixth day, you go get twice. So that on the seventh day, all you need to do is not focus on work and survival and taking care of yourself and all of that kind of stuff that we always have to worry about every single day. You have one day where you can focus on God. And that was what the rest was all about. That's what the whole big deal about what this rest was, was that you would stop and focus on worship to God, that you would see that there is a relationship with God and that God was offering by Him resting that all the world could join into that rest if they would have faith. Now notice the second proof as it begins in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So it remains, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Notice the hinging of the second proof is simply this, the word today. (laughs) That's the whole of this argument. The first argument is simply when God rested, he was expecting other people to rest with him. And the second argument is this, today. When David said these words in verse 7, as is quoted there today, if you'll hear his voice, not R&R, comes from Psalm 95. Long after Joshua had brought the people into the promised land, 
They had already entered into Canaan hundreds of years earlier by the time David had come on the scene. You've already had your judges. You've already had Joshua. You've already had Saul. You've had all kinds of time to be in the land. If the promised rest was already being enjoyed by Israel, why does David come along and say, today, don't harden your heart and enjoy the rest? Because they didn't obtain it is the implication. Because they were not ones that enjoyed that. And I want us to consider that idea for a minute because I think that's an important declaration that is, that is being made. If rest, if the rest that God had promised had been enjoyed, why is David so concerned in saying today don't harden your heart like the people in the wilderness? What it means then is that there is a rest that continues that is available for all people who have faith. Those are what those two proofs are simply doing. If I could just kind of, there's more there, but just quickly boil them down. He's just proving to them. I want you to see that the promise rest that is offered from Genesis 2 has been extended to Israel and they failed to accept it. And just because they failed to accept it doesn't mean the rest doesn't still exist. It has been offered to all people for all generations to any who have faith. Now, most people as we read this go, I've got a really big issue with that. Because if you are saying that occupying the land of Canaan is not the promised rest... What do we make of the end of Joshua where Joshua 21 says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, They didn't get the rest. And sounds like in Joshua they did. In Joshua 21, verse 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side. And you go, okay, how do we work this out? How can the writer of Hebrews say they didn't obtain the rest when Joshua says they did? Well, I suppose if you think about the story of Israel, the answer actually is not that hard to, to surmise is that God did give them rest, but Israel's history shows that they didn't enter into a period of permanent rest. Yep, they had rest on every side, just as God had promised, just as you see in the book of Deuteronomy. But what happens no sooner than Joshua dies? They're attacked on every side. There's oppression on every side. The people are not at rest. And there's all kinds of problems as they're oppressed and attacked and these difficulties arise. Why did those difficulties arise? Why was that happening? Was it a failure on God's part? No. If you remember the book of Judges, what's the problem at the beginning and the end of the book? They do not know the Lord, and they all did what was right in their own eyes. The failure was on the people's end. They could have entered into a permanent rest with God. That's what Deuteronomy is promising. You will come into the land and you won't have to worry about crops. You're not going to have to worry about enemies. You're not going to have to worry about boundaries. I'm just going to take care of you. In fact, it's going to be so bountiful and you'll be so blessed, you're not going to know what to do with it all. That's what's being promised. How to go for it. They didn't experience any of that. Was that because of God? No. God had established the ability for them to rest, but instead of them enjoying it, 
They chose to disobey, which proves the very point that the writer of Hebrews is making. The essence of the promised rest is essentially this. Is that you have a relationship with God that is not interrupted by the cares and the concerns of the world. This is the big idea of what is being hoped for is that uh, they would be able to not worry about those kinds of things. Just like when they are in the wilderness. When Israel was in the wilderness, did they have to worry about their clothes? Did they have to worry about their shoes? Did they have to worry about water or worry about food? Now they chose to, but they didn't have to. God was giving them a picture of what it looked like. Just do not have an evil, unbelieving heart, and I'm gonna, you're going to enjoy this relationship with me, with, uninterrupted by cares and concerns. All they had to do was worship God. They didn't have to worry about it. Wake up the next day in your tent, walk outside, there's breakfast. Easy. No problem. In the middle of a wilderness. But they refused. And so this is the big picture of the rest. Please hear this. When the scriptures talk about a rest or talk about a Sabbath, it is not, it is not, it is not talking about the need for humans to have physical rest. There's nowhere there. Because it is nowhere talked about they did absolutely nothing and they just laid on the ground and did nothing. That's not what it's talking about. In fact, as I mentioned, the priest worked even harder. It is not about physical rest. And sometimes we have to be careful that we have the tendency to take our modern conventions and our modern culture and often backwards shove it into Scripture. I found this fascinating. The workday being limited for eight hours, being limited just to an eight-hour day, did not begin until 1810. They worked way more than that beforehand. You know, now we're, we're freaking out. In, our, you know. in 1810. The five-day work week began in 1908. You know, we look at it and go, it's been this way forever, right? We've always worked eight-hour eight days, five days a week. No, we haven't. Not even in this country we haven't done that. We cannot take modern convention and shove it backward and go, see what God was saying is you needed two days off or one day off or something like that. That's not God's concern. What God was concerned was simply this. He is giving you an opportunity to have your attention completely upon Him. Free from cares, free from worries. Don't worry about what you're going to eat that next day. I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about survival on the seventh day. It's all going to be given to you. That's what was being offered in Sabbath. That's what was being offered in rest and what the Sabbath was trying to get across to them. Friends, this is why when you read the prophets and you read that God is always angry that they defiled and did not keep my Sabbath. And you go, what is the big deal? So they wanted to work some more. Is that such a big deal? It is of what was being offered in that. Because what God was saying was, if you would just trust me, I'm going to give you a day where you can be free from worry and concern and you can just focus on me. That was the goal. That was the whole intent. And unfortunately, Israel didn't want anything to do with that. Even after exile, they didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted to keep depending upon themselves rather than depending upon God. 
So this was, was God's big concern. Now, this brings us to an interesting thing to think about, because sometimes what people want to do is, well, now Sunday's the Christian Sabbath, right? And so, no, it's not. <laughs> but I want you to think about this. It should be our very desire to be able to want to have fellowship and worship with God free from concern and worries of life. That should be one of the things we yearn for is when I don't have to worry about survival and job and things and stuff and all the things that life brings to us to be able to have that day where I don't have to have any of that any longer. That's what God was offering to Israel. And that should be resounding within us. You see why Jesus was so mad at the Pharisees for what they did with the Sabbath? And then they turned it into regulation and rules that weren't even in, in the law. And they also failed to see how it was about enjoying relationship with God. How they could spend their time with Him. It should be something that we would desire. And it says a lot. I believe it says a lot. Just as it did to Israel. If we would rather spend our time being concerned about human cares and concerns and survival than in worship and fellowship with God. If we would rather have all of the worries of life and all of the goings of the day than a time that we can spend in devotion to God. That's what God was so upset about with Israel. I designated a rest for you. And you didn't want it. You didn't want it as seen in a small part in the Sabbath. And they didn't want it in the big part of the promised land of Canaan. And they failed to enjoy a rest that God was promising. He promised how he could care for them and give them everything they need where they could just focus on him. And they did not want to do that. Which leads now to his big conclusion now in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Since he's proven that there is a rest that still remains. Verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. The example of Israel is brought to our eyes again. Look at all that they had. They received the good news. They were brought out of Egypt. They enjoyed the exodus. They saw the miracles. They saw how God provided for them. And yet they did not enjoy the rest. Even with all they experienced, they didn't enjoy the rest. And so now he warns them. Do not be like them. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And we need to just simply ask ourselves this. Is this ultimately what we want? Is this ultimately our greatest desire? Does this sound wonderful? Absolutely uninterrupted fellowship with God. That should just dance in our ears and sing in our hearts to think of a day where all the chaos of life is for that time gone. 
What God is trying to offer us is really something so beautiful. What God is trying to offer us is this unending worship time with our Creator and Savior. That God is saying, I I want there to be this relationship that would exist so that your focus could always be on me and not by the cares of the world and the concerns and the stuff and the survival and the hubbub and all that. That there is this rest that is being promised to the people of God. And Israel chose to fail in entering that rest. Verse 12 is how we enter. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, we come full circle back to the word of God. What is the means by which we strive to enter the rest is the word of God is the tool. And think about how that truly comes full circle. Why did Israel ultimately fail to enter the rest? They didn't listen to the word of God. They didn't listen. They had the evil unbelieving heart and did not listen. And here is what God says. Here is the tool you have to be able to cut down to the very core of your life so that you will not fail to enter. It is the word of God and there is nothing else. That God has made his word to be like a sword. And it operates in that way that it's able to discern down to the very motives and intentions and thoughts. We can deceive each other all day long. And we can pretend like, you know, we are such godly people. But the word of God reveals the truth. Because the word of God cuts down to the very core. And as verse 13 says, there's nothing hidden from God's sight. That's why you must use the sword. To cut through, to test the thoughts and the mind and the heart and the intentions and the motives. We need the word of God today, as long as it is called today, to point those things out to us so we do not fall by the same disobedience. Have you not noticed how far we fall from God when we stop spending time in God's word? And you know, there's a direct correlation When you spend less time in God's Word, that's when you fall fast from God. God's Word is the tool. God's Word is what changes us. God's Word is what cuts through. God's Word is what we need so that we do not fail to enter into the rest that God has promised. This is what the big point that he's getting at in these two chapters is the Word of God. Listen to it. And friends, even more so. Let the Word of God do its work. I think that's the hardest part. Our tendency with the Word of God is, well, that doesn't apply to me. Or we take the Word of God and go, boy, I sure wish that person would hear that verse. 
Boy, my neighbor across the street, they could really use that one. You know, those people over there, boy, they could use that verse bomb. You know, everybody else gets the application. Because that's easy. You know what the hard part is? To let the Word of God slice through you. And really let it cut and go, this is my problem. We don't want to do that. We put the defense shield up. Put the armor up. We block ourselves to it. But God says, I gave you my word with the intention. He doesn't say the word of God is a nice, cushy pillow that when it pokes you, it feels really good and soft and you want to give it a hug and embrace it. I like God's word that way. Just give it to me soft and cuddly. God says, I didn't give it to you that way. It's a sharp sword. It has an intention. It's supposed to cut. In fact, if it's not cutting, you're not allowing it to work. The blade's not dull. So why is it not cutting? Because the heart's dull. That's his concern. That's why Israel fell. He called them with stubborn hearts. And we can so easily do the same. And we do not allow the Word of God to penetrate in the way that it's supposed to. I hope you've experienced that. You've ever, you know, you've read God's word at home. You've listened to a sermon or heard somebody speak God's word. And there's this uneasiness that's supposed to happen. That level of being uncomfortable, kind of squirm a little, that's supposed to happen. That's what the word of God is intended to do. It's supposed to cut through and really reveal the very thoughts and the intentions of our heart because nothing is hidden from God's sight. So big conclusion now. What's the big deal? How can this help us going forward? There is a rest that is still available. And what I want you to think about for a minute is that it really is the only true rest there is. Rest is a word that just sounds wonderful, right? If I were to say this afternoon you were going to go rest, we would all be like, yeah, right, that's rest. We love that word, rest. And yet as often as we try to rest... It's never permanent. You get a good rest at night, and guess what? The next day brings all of the cares and all the troubles and all of the concerns and all the survival of life that the last day had. We even go on vacation and try to get rest. And sometimes we do a bad job of that because we do so much or we still have all the cares and concerns and worries while we're on vacation. And even if we have a great rest on vacation, what happens? The rest ends. And we're back to all the survival and the rigmarole and the Monday through Friday and we're in the hamster wheel of life all over again. What God wants us to see is there is absolutely no rest in this world. True rest is this uninterrupted fellowship with God where we are no longer concerned with survival and cares of life. This is the big idea of what God wants. 
Everything else that we experience is just temporary. We go buy a new house and think, oh, now we can rest. <laughs> nope. That brought all new cares and concerns and worries and problems. I'll buy a new car. Now I can rest. Well, that just brought all kinds of new expenses and problems and worries. Everything we do doesn't bring rest. In fact, you might remember back to when you had less. You know, usually when we were younger, we had less than where we are now. And you probably had more rest when you had less stuff. Because all of the cares and all of the concerns and all of the worries and all of the stuff interferes with this uninterrupted worship with God that he's offering. I'm trying to offer you real rest because everything else in this life is temporary. I'd like for you to consider your own experience for a moment. Every once in a while... You do get to experience that. Hopefully like in this last hour. For just a few minutes. Cares of life and survival and all of that run run. Is swept away. When we get to focus on worshiping God. And get lost in God's word forget all the cares of life when you're deep in prayer when your heart is sunk into song there are so many of these avenues where we get these temporary grabs of what the ultimate final rest can look like what God is truly trying to offer in fact think about what Jesus is walking around saying we sung a song this morning that borrows from these words Come to me and get what? What do we do? Come to him and pile on more and more and more. And he's going, wait a minute. I was trying to offer you something. I was trying to offer you a break from all of that. I was trying to offer a different direction in that. I don't have the time to read it, but just think about Matthew 6 where he begins in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't want you to be anxious about life. What you will eat, what you will drink, what will you wear. Do you see the picture of Sabbath underneath that? True rest in God. Don't worry about the concerns of life and don't worry about survival. I'm going to take care of those things. So he says, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry, be anxious about tomorrow. He's offering it. He's trying to give it to us. Do you want rest? The biggest thing that Jesus offered us is the thing that our soul yearns for the most. Rest. And then rather than hearing what Jesus says about what it takes to enter that rest, and enjoy that rest and enjoy those moments that we can step into that rest. We actually often do the very opposite. Have you ever thought about how Israel could have done what they did? 
You experienced the exodus. You saw the mighty hand of God. You saw how God took care of you in the wilderness. And all he said is now trust me and enjoy the rest that is ahead. And they didn't trust. We read that and go, man, that's crazy. They do something like that. How dumb of them. We've seen the cross, which is the exodus that takes us out of our sin and slavery. We've seen the miracles of Jesus raised from the dead. And we have seen how God has cared for us up to this point all the way through. And God says, keep keep trusting me and strive to enter that rest and give your heart and give your life to me and just be devoted to me. And I'll give you the rest of that rest. You've tasted pieces of it. We're more concerned about the hamster wheel of life. Don't fail to enter the rest. Don't give up on God. There is a rest that is available to you. The rest that your soul absolutely desires. The rest that your soul is ultimately seeking. But it is not in the Monday through Friday of life. It's not in career, possessions, jobs, stuff, family, everything that we pile into that box. It will leave you empty and restless. Your hope is in God. There is a rest that is available to you. But we have to desire that. If worship is not something that we absolutely enjoy, prayer, time in God's Word, remembering His death, I would submit to you to be very concerned that like Israel, you are so focused on this life that you're missing out on what God's trying to give you. This life's not it. There is something so much more for you. And I hope you'll consider how you can receive the grace of God today. Let's turn away from those sins. Turn away from living for self. Turn away from a life that is just full of being consumed by the cares and concerns and the things of this world. And look at truly trusting in God to be in charge of your life and that you'd follow Him faithfully. As we sing this song, can we help you in any way respond to the invitation? Won't you come while we stand and while we